0: Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. I vividly remember when I showed up for the first day of my surgery residency at the University of Minnesota in my crisp new white coat with the Washington manuals stuffed tight in the front pocket, scared to death. At the time, I rather naively thought that I was only there to learn how to take care of patients and operate. Little did I realize that there was, and there still is, a hidden curriculum in our surgical culture it was going to install several new habits into my personal operating system. Like the discipline habit, to keep going no matter what. And the be strong habit, so you can pretend you're okay even when you're not. And of course, the self-sufficiency habit, so you can learn how to deal with problems without the help of others. The thing is, these are critical and essential habits for surgeons but like all good things, they are good until they are not. And the ability to discern that inflection point, well, this is the land of wisdom and wisdom entails careful reflection and self-awareness. Attributes that in general are not developed as part of the curriculum or within our surgical culture. And these challenges are exacerbated by the typically fast-paced and overwhelmed world of a cardiothoracic surgical career. Kate Shanafelt at Stanford highlighted the pernicious side of our medical culture in his paper from 2019, entitled, Healing the Professional Culture of Medicine, in which he writes, and I quote, as physicians, we tend to overwork, imply that normal human limitations do not apply to us, and often assume the role of a hero. We are inculcated with a mindset of perfectionism, lack of vulnerability, and low self-compassion. Mistakes are the fault of the individual and are unacceptable. To err is human, but we are superhuman." End quote. Well, our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast, Brad Stolberg, is here to help us develop that wisdom that is so desperately needed. Brad is the author of two books with Steve Magnus. The first is Peak Performance, which is the Bible of the principles required to make sustainable progress in any endeavor, be it athletics, entrepreneurship, or surgery. And the second book is The Passion Paradox, in which he showed people how to develop passion and drive and point it in productive directions. However, after Brad wrote The Passion Paradox, he was blindsided by the sudden development of a debilitating OCD problem led him to, and I quote, pause and reflect on his tendencies to solve every problem on his incessant drive and restlessness, on his always looking ahead attitude, and on his inability to be content. Brad's struggle was a catalyst for his newest book, written by himself, called The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds not crushes your soul, a title that I feel confident many of you will identify with. The beauty of his book, The Practice of Groundedness is the fact that he is an expert on high performance. And in the book, he combines his real vulnerability with the science and practice of wisdom. The practice of groundedness is a major contribution to our thinking about high performance in a sustainable and human way. Since we are, after all, Humans first and cardiothoracic surgeons second. I hope you will find the conversation as rich and as insightful as I did. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. R of I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world and It was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, but it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org/slash ebook. Today it is such an honor to welcome our guest, Brad Stolberg, the author of three powerful books that I encourage everybody to read: uh, Peak Performance, The Paradox of Passion and his most recent one, The the Practice of Groundedness. And it was really the book, The Practice of Groundedness that drew me me into his world and my desire to have him on the podcast. And in many ways, I think uh, the message that he has today for all of us uh, about our human side, combined with our high intensity, striving world of cardiothoracic surgery is one of the most important messages that you'll hear uh, on the podcast this year. So, Brad, welcome to the podcast. It's a real honor, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm really thrilled to be here. It's an honor.
0: Good. Well, Brad, if you could just kind of give us a synopsis of of your trajectory, you know, how you kind of got into this world of peak performance and then now the practice of groundedness and and I know that you've also worked in the past for McKinsey, you struggled with some burnout and you also have close relationships and have worked as I understand it for Kaiser Permanente in the past and so kind of touch on some of those things if you would in terms of your relationship to the medical world.
1: Yeah, you bet so i feel very much uh related to the medical world on two fronts and the first is family so my father-in-law who i admire very much is a oncologist he ran a large residency program for 25 years he was the chair of the department um i've got that my younger brother is a neurologist i've got that oh and Mm -hmm. my best friend who might as well be my brother is an emergency medicine doctor so I am oh, so the surrounded. I am the odd physician out. Um, <laughs> so personally, I uh, I just am in awe of how physicians show up and do what they do and sustain it. And it is I'm sure we'll get into this, but it is not at all surprising that burnout, anxiety, depression are so prevalent amongst physicians given not only the stress of the work, but also so much about the system that you operate in, which as any right. physician will know, it very rarely functions as it should. Right. My other connection to healthcare is much more intellectual and practical. So I have a graduate degree in public health from the University of Michigan, and I really wanted to focus less on a sick system, kind of like you have sick people and you could focus on getting rid of disease, or you could focus on thriving. And in public health, the world is very much geared towards treating a sick system. Mm
0: -hmm. And I was
1: much more interested in working with individuals or small departments on saying, hey, this is the system that you're operating on. Let's try to make you as resilient, as strong, as much of a peak performer as possible. So coming out of public health school, I took a job, as you said, at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, and there, I pretty quickly started coaching younger physicians. So these were physicians that had aspirations of having a dual career where they're about 40 to 60% clinical and then the other 40 to 60% leadership. Mm -hmm. And my job was basically to prepare them for what was to come so that eight years down the road, they wouldn't be like a deer in a headlight when suddenly they're the chair of the department or the chief and they're everyone's boss and they're miserable and they're still supposed to practice. And it's just a big mess. Right. And, um, I did that work for about nine years. And, um, then my family and I decided to relocate from Northern California to uh, a small mountain town called Asheville in North Carolina. And that ended my formal relationship with Kaiser Permanente because they are in Northern California, the the medical group that I worked Mm -hmm. for there. Um, and now I have a private coaching practice where I still work with uh, about 20% of my clientele are physicians.
0: And then how did you come to write, uh, peak performance and, 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 uh, the paradox of passion.
1: So peak performance was my first book and I had the idea for this book. I began training at a somewhat serious level for endurance sports. And I realized that so many of the principles that apply to training for sport apply to training for other pursuits, whether it's medicine research, being an attorney. You could even argue being a parent. Predominantly, this notion that the way that you get growth is by stressing yourself at the right dose Mm -hmm. and then resting and recovering. I call it the growth equation. Stress plus rest equals growth. For those of you that can think back and remember basic biology, it's homeostasis, it's allostasis. It is just how we evolve. And we develop skills the same way. So that became the chassis for that entire book, which looks at right. how this equation can apply to different pursuits. And then the second book, The Paradox of Passion, The Passion Paradox, explores how we're always told that passion and drive is a good thing. Find your passion, follow your passion, be passionate. Anyone that is a practicing surgeon is gotta be passionate just to make it to, to that level of, uh, of medicine.
0: Indeed, yeah.
1: Yet what people don't talk about is the dark side of passion. Mm -hmm. So when your passion turns into compulsion, or when it becomes so focused on external results that you stop loving the work itself, or when you love the work so much that you struggle to love your partner or your kids because there's no time and no energy left over. Mm -hmm. So this book really wrestled with passion in a much more nuanced intellectual way to say, hey, passion isn't good or bad, it just is. It's like Mm -hmm. rocket fuel, Mm -hmm. and if you point it in the right direction, and you're aware of all its pitfalls and you harness it you can do incredible things
0: mm-hmm. but
1: if you just have passion and it just runs wild good luck because it could take you to some pretty rough and dark places
0: yes yes and th- that's a perfect setup for the transition into your latest work you know the practice of groundedness because that's essentially what we're talking about here right? isn't it,
1: Brad? it it is and i think it's by far the most important book that i've written so i had to write these books in reverse Because if you think about a mountain, peak performance is when you're on the top of a mountain Mm
0: -hmm. and everything
1: is clicking and everything is working. And you want to continue to build and develop your peak performance. Stress plus rest equals growth. The passion paradox is very much about how you climb that mountain. So how do you cultivate motivation? How do you cultivate drive and how do you stay on the right path? How do you not go veer off and go sideways? But what I hadn't really explored is, well, what's the foundation of the mountain itself?
0: Mm -hmm. And much like an actual
1: mountain, everyone looks at the peak or the slope and they admire it, but no one looks at a mountain and says, Jesus, that is a huge freaking base. Mm -hmm. And we're the same way. We spend so much time thinking about motivation and peak performance without thinking about, well, how are we building a base, a foundation that is going to be durable enough to hold us amidst all kinds of weather. And what got me intellectually interested in this is two things. The first is many of my coaching clients were really struggling with burnout. And it was nothing that could be done on a, Hey, just fix this, or just fix that. These were core foundational issues and habits, um, both individually and then in structures and in systems that aren't conducive to thriving that were broken. Right. And they all coalesced around this same theme, which is there's delusional thinking. There's nonstop distraction. There's no time to be patient, let alone think deeply. It's all about speed invincibility over everything you have to be buttoned up and stoic you go at it alone community is inefficient it's a waste of time to build community and oh by the way if you used to be an athlete or you used to like to garden you have no time for that you just have to work yeah that was broken and then in my own life i suffered a bad bout of obsessive compulsive disorder and secondary depression which for me um as I'm sure you know from from your story of mental illness, it just totally shakes your own foundation. You don't know what's happening to you. You don't know how you got there. You don't see any way out. And the coalescing of those two things—what was happening personally and professionally—that was the kernel of this idea that hey, there are some foundational principles that societally we're getting wrong, that in fields like healthcare we're getting wrong, and that individually we're getting wrong. Now, i didn't write this book when i was in therapy there was eight months of me just being in dante's dark woods searching for any way out but when i did get to the other side with the help of a very skilled therapist uh, my own passion my own drive my own intellectual mind i couldn't just let this go i really wanted to wrestle with it and and see if i could uh, make some meaning on the
0: other side it's fantastic fantastic so you know you you talk in in the book about a concept of heroic individualism and i i certainly think that that is apropos to the world of cardiothoracic surgery can you kind of expand on that and explain what you mean by the heroic individualism
1: so i define heroic individualism is an ongoing game of one-upsmanship so you're trying to beat yourself and others so it's against self and others where the main arbiter of how successful or how fulfilled you are is some external measure. And the kicker is that the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. Mm -hmm. So if I just become a fellow, then I'll be content. If I just become an attending at this academic medical center, then I'll be content. If I just become the assistant chair, then I'll be content. If I just become chief, then I'll be content. And there's the always, if I just then. And what you realize is that trying to find contentment in that way is a fool's errand because there's always the next thing something i see really commonly in my coaching practice um, with physicians is that there's this lesser discussed kind of burnout which is someone makes it to 45 50 years old and they do become the chair the chief or the physician in chief whatever it is at their respective medical center and then there's no next step on the ladder and they just don't know what to do mm-hmm. because y'all, since high school, you're taking advanced science classes and then pre-med and then med school and then residency, and then you get a fellowship and then you become attending and it's like this progression. And then suddenly you hit mid-career and you're at your peak. And now what, what's next? If I'm already the chief, if I'm running the place, running the department, what's next? Yeah. And that feeling of what's next can lead to a lot of emptiness because we're constantly striving for that next thing. And this has become ubiquitous in society. I'm focusing on medicine because that's our our main topic today. But it's no different with kids these days that look at social media and they say, if I just get this many followers, then I'll be content. If my podcast just gets this many downloads, then I'll be content. So it's this kind of if-then thinking that sets us up for craving something that's always going to be out in front of us. And if that's heroic individualism, then groundedness is how do you play that game and still strive and still want to achieve? but not let it dominate so much that you can't find fulfillment in the moment.
0: Right. And, you know, these terms fulfillment and contentment, I think, and, you know, cause you're, what you're talking about, it seems to me is living a filled up life versus a fulfilled life. And, and I'd, I'd like you to, if you could expand on, you know, the word contentment now to a lot of cardiothoracic surgeons, that may sound like kind of I'm being soft and mushy here, but I learned in my own journey, you know, with my experiences that I actually was content for the first time in my life. You know, I, I did achieve that. And it was, it was really glorious to feel content. I mean, I'm not talking about, I'm walking around every day, like, oh, I'm so content and everything's perfect. But in general, I was relaxed about living and, and peaceful with it. What what are your thoughts around the word contentment and what that means in this kind of contextual nature of high performance?
1: I'm really glad you poked because I, um, if you didn't, I wouldn't have elucidated. And I'm scared that everyone would have hit, uh, hit next podcast. So hang with us. (laughs) The way that I find contentment is that you are at least okay enough in enjoying where you are. It is not about not wanting to improve. Now at the risk of sounding woo-woo, I'm Mm going to start sound woo-woo at first, then I'm going to go science. So the woo-woo is there is a huge difference between striving and performing out of a place of fear and compulsion or out of a place of love. So when you're striving out of a place of fear or compulsion, you feel like you're not enough, you feel like you don't have self-worth, you feel like your entire identity is attached to being good at this thing. That is really exhausting. It's an endless endless game. game. And you can be really good playing that game. game. Fear is a powerful motivator, but it only lasts so long before you burn out. Whereas performing from a place of love is having genuine self-confidence and saying, hey, I'm enough right now and I want to get better because I enjoy what I do. It's fun, it's playful. You can still be competitive, but it, it, it takes on more of a lightness. Yeah. So that's the woo-woo side of things. The science side of things is so clear. Um, the researcher Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi that is known for creating flow, right. these states of peak performance when you're completely in the zone, what he found is that a precondition to flow is A, being distraction free, so you can't be thinking and worrying. Well, what if I what if I fail? Because then you'll never get into flow. And B, a genuine level of self confidence in your current skills. So it's this paradox: we think that in, in, in current,
0: current skills, yes, in current skills, current skills.
1: What, yes. what we think is that you have to feel like you're not good enough to get better. And what I argue in the book and what the research so unequivocally shows is that actually the best way to get better is to start from a place of feeling good enough because you're not playing on your toes. Anytime you're performing from a place of fear, you're, you're, excuse me, you're not playing on your heels. Yeah. So when I say contentment, I don't mean that you're gonna work a nine to five and watch the same sitcom every night and drink a beer and have popcorn and just chill. Yeah. Although for a lot of driven surgeons that they probably wish they could do that, but y'all aren't wired like that. Like that's not in the cards for you. Yeah. What I mean is to not feel the need to do what you do, but to want to do what you do.
0: How do you scale? You know, you've know, you also talked about the modern world and the pernicious impact of the modern world in creating this, this situation that we find ourselves in. Of course, there's work and all the metrics that are put upon us nowadays, which were non-existent previously, endless metrics, metrics that we see in the social media world, and just the compulsion to have more and more and more. What are your thoughts around that and and destroying any possibility of contentment potentially?
1: Well, I think that you've got to define what game you're playing and what metrics you care about
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then do a really good job of trying to tune
0: out all the others. And that's the individual part. That's that's the, the burden on us as individuals. Because society is not going to do it.
1: Society is right. not going to do it for us. Right. Yeah. Um, and the those metrics can be useful information, but they can't be the cart pulling the horse. We mm-hmm. can't just constantly be chasing those metrics. Um, Often when I talk to physicians that are in systems, every physician I've ever worked with complains about metrics and 50% of the complaints are righteous and 50% are just complaints. So <laughs> for the 50% that are righteous, then you just have to like, let go of those metrics, get slapped on the wrist. If your efficiency isn't, you know, X plus one, and it's just X, who cares if that's, if, no. if that allows you to practice medicine in alignment with your values, that's fine. Um, and if you're a leader. Then the goal is to try to develop metrics that a actually represent quality, and b don't suck the joy out of the practice.
0: Out of the practice, yeah. Well, that 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 uh, slap on the wrist thing, or it, it brings us to you know the the the, the meat of your book and the and the principles, and and one of them is acceptance, and 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 that's that's another kind of loaded term like uh, contentment. Can you talk about acceptance or actually, if you could, I mean, whatever sequence you feel is best to kind of go through the. the Yeah, I think
1: think acceptance is definitely the first and for sure. So people hear acceptance and they think just phoning it in, not caring, giving up. And that is not at all how I define acceptance. I define acceptance is seeing something clearly, whether you want to embrace it or not, realizing that it's there. So then you can take skillful action and do something about it.
0: Skillful action. That's the key to work.
1: Acceptance is a pathway to skillful action.
0: Yeah.
1: Delusional thinking, you just get action. It's not skillful because you're not actually working on the thing that you need to be working on. You're not realizing the environment that you're in. If you can realize the things that you don't necessarily want to realize or the environment that you're in and truly see them clearly, then that opens you up to taking skillful action. So acceptance is a pathway to skillful action. And as you so, um, you so keenly highlighted skillful is the key because otherwise we just act and it's not always skillful. And then we run around like chickens with our heads cut off and
0: we tire ourselves out. Yeah. And when I was in treatment, um, I was resistant to the treatment process when I first got there to put it mildly. And the, 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 the light, the crack that let the light in for me as Leonard Cohen likes to sing in his song is, uh, my psychologist put up on a, on a board pain times resistance equals suffering. And right away, I got that, you know, and so the, the key thing is there, you know, resisting reality, whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it is, uh, by complaining or numbing, whatever it is, it's going to lead to suffering long term.
1: Yep. And, and I, I think, think that here, pain. here for a, um, for a practicing surgeon, First off, I love that equation. I use it in my next book. I think that, that it just makes it so simple and so real. Yes. Yeah. Uh, anyone that's ever struggled from any kind of like um, musculoskeletal pain knows how much resistance adds to the suffering. Like back right. pain is just back pain. Back mm-hmm. pain that you're constantly thinking about, that you're doing everything to get to go away, that really can take over your life.
0: Take over your life.
1: Now, individually, if there's resistance around, Hey, I am stuck in a bad relationship or I'm at the wrong system, or, um, I'm not practicing as well as I could be that generally you just have to accept and often with help. You know, you mentioned a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a good friend, a mentor. Systemically when you run into problems, I think that you've got to make a decision is this a fight or is this a battle that i want to pick and if it is then go fight and go push back but if it's not then don't and the answer as to what to do it's going to depend on the situation it's going to depend on your life stage so i'm not saying fight or don't i'm just saying have the acceptance and self-awareness to really see what the thing is before you yeah. decide whether or not and what to do about it
0: yeah and whether to engage and waste your energy potentially and disrupt your mental health in the process yeah yeah okay so then you know the other other one is uh patience is is one of the ones you, you one of the other core things that you talk about
1: yeah so heroic individualism we're obsessed with speed and mm-hmm. efficiency and optimization but no one wants their tombstone to read, he rushed, Mm -hmm. or she rushed, Mm -hmm. at least no one that I've met. So we can get into such a frenzy of trying to do, 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 and achieve, 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 and accomplish, 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 that it almost can feel like we're losing control of our lives. And the quality of any given thing that we're doing tends to go down, and certainly how we feel about it tends to suffer as well. So patience is really the art of slowing down. And what the research shows is that there tends to be a real trade-off between short-term results and long-term results. And short-term results, if I wanted to be the best writer, or the best coach I could be, you wanted to be the best surgeon you could be, you would likely down Red Bulls and espressos, sleep four hours a night, practice 18 hours a day, and you would be phenomenal. If you're in an RVU system, you'd set the freaking record after one month. Right. But after six months or a year, you probably would be an inefficient doctor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas if you pace yourself and you have patience and you show restraint early on, you won't get as much done on any given day, week, or month. But over the course of a career, you'll be so much more productive. So patients really asks you to reframe what you're doing as a marathon and not run any mile too fast? Because you look great in that mile, but then you completely implode later on in the race.
0: This, this patience thing has, from my perspective, really significant ramifications in other areas of our lives, in particular relationships, I think. Um, you know, one of the, the admonition is, you know, you hear a lot is, well, you know, make sure it's quality time and, you know, and, and do things and, and do all that but when I retired from surgery and I spent time with my daughter in the car and I was actually had to, it wasn't necessarily a long time, but just the mere fact of presence and patience with the evolution of our relationship and talking, I mean, it transformed our relationship. That patience led to dramatic gains in our understanding of each other. Do you have any thoughts around that or other aspects of our lives?
1: I, I do. And I think that, um, there, I'm going to quote the the mid 20th century psychotherapist, D.W. Winnicott, mm-hmm. whose work I, I write about in the book. And he came up with the notion of the good enough parent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the job of a good enough parent is to create a space where the child can flourish and become who they are. And it requires great patience not to constantly intervene. And you also can't check out because he's not saying neglect the kid. You gotta be present for them because sometimes yeah, they the actually pattern,
0: right? they
1: do yeah, they do need you to nudge them back on the path. So good enough and patience are tied at the the hip, the good enough parent and patience. And I think that also we should treat ourselves like a good enough parent in our big endeavors. Okay, yes. When we get really tied up in something in speed, we have to say, Hey, how can I just give this the space to unfold? Um what you're explaining with your daughter uh is is so profound and so true i'm i'm a little bit younger than you so my my kid is still young and um my four-year-old theo he recently just got super into showering so you know i'm his dad i'm totally comfortable with this we started showering together yes in those agree. moments in the shower michael oh. the things that he opens up to me about yeah exactly. the other night we were taking a shower and he just said dad What's going to happen when you die? Mm-hmm. There's I, That would never have happened if we just weren't in a space, not thinking about the next thing, me not white trying space, to contrive, please, just white no, space.
0: No agenda. No
1: Which agenda. is so hard for yeah. a driven person like me or you yeah. to create. Yeah. I want to have a podcast on when I'm in the shower. So I'm learning. Yes, I, I want to be on the phone while I'm driving. So I'm taking out a client or a meeting. Yeah. Um, and then you miss those moments. So there's, there's this trade-off, you're right, short-term, long-term, but also in the moment between efficiency and optimization yeah. versus allowing time and space for those pearls of insight. And the same is true with ourselves. We're talking about parenting a lot. For those that aren't parents, that's how you have a breakthrough idea. If you're constantly thinking or listening or taking in information or pushing to the next thing, you're never going to have that aha moment or that aha
0: insight no critical is a, a, a part of my part of yeah
1: yeah is a part yeah. of my um my research and reporting for the book i talked to many physician and physician researchers and particularly the researchers what they find is there's a real trade-off between their efficiency in practice and their novel thinking and research yeah. and the more efficient they are in practice the less novel ideas they have because yeah. but, they don't have that space
0: now yeah, the the restaurant ibuli i am probably not pronouncing it right in spain they're famous for nine years of perfect execution because they gotta every night they got to deliver those this is one of the best restaurants in the world deliver those meals perfectly but then they take three months to create over the summer uh, and that kind of white space of course we can't do that but you can give yourself a three-day weekend or you can work these things into your into your world but with regards to my kids and I think it's also true of, of us as individuals i I have a sort of a I've kind of developed this notion of a triangle and One of the points in the triangle is taking care of myself physically and mentally. The other point is my desire to be, that's one of my core values is excellence in whatever I do. And then the other one is to like allow myself the freedom to, to pursue the passion that I have developed for things, particular things. So I used to have much more of an agenda for my children, you know, in terms of like, yeah, you need to go to college, you need to do this, and then you get the job. This is the old version, one Mike Mattis. But now I have a whole different paradigm. I use that triangle work, experiment, find out what it is you're about and learn and grow that passion over time. Take care of yourself. And I, and I hold you to excellence in whatever you do, do it as well as you can. And I I feel like that's a much better container for my children. And as you say, for ourselves too.
1: Yeah. And I think that a lot of very driven people get caught in um, what I've come to call the double bind. So are you familiar with this? Have you heard this before? I've heard it,
0: but I, I, I'm anxious to hear you articulate it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the double bind is you want to be the best or the triple or quadruple or the heptepal bind. You want to be the best partner and spouse. You want to be the best parent. You want to be the best surgeon. You want to run marathons <laughs> and suddenly you're trying to do all these things and what you're finding is that you can't do any of them at the level of excellence that you set for yourself right right and a big part of what drives this is back to heroic individualism society we're constantly told you should be balanced and you should be great at all these things nonsense any high performer that tries to be balanced is just going to end up depressed and judging themselves because they're going to feel like they're phoning it in so much better than that is to reflect on your core values Exactly, as you said, figure out what really matters to you and then pursue those things with gusto and with self-awareness so that when it comes time to switch or reprioritize, you're able to. Yeah. Now, that is such a more nuanced message than just, oh, be balanced. Again, some people, it's great. I actually, at times, and I've gotten better at this, my own practice of self-compassion. A couple years ago, I would say I envy people that can just work a nine to five as an accountant, come home watch the Simpsons, go to sleep, do it again. And I don't say that judgmentally. I really do because it would be so nice to just be so secure and not have to achieve, not have to have ambition, not have to push, but I'm not wired that way. Right. So for me that's, to try that's to have the key a, thing. That's the key for me thing. to try right. to have a balance, just, just as for that person to try to do what I do or what you do would be nonsense. Not nonsense. So if you're wired that way, then it's about back to acceptance, accepting that you're wired that way, seeing it clearly. In not denying it not pretending you're not really accepting it so then you can skillfully work with it and in this case work with it
0: yes skillfully
1: work work with it means to prioritize and reprioritize and communicate with your partner hey i i am going to go all in this month i am going to go all in this year are you okay with that if not let's talk about it instead of trying to just be perfect at all things all the time
0: yeah that's been a big transition for me is to actually be aware of when i'm hitting a crunch time or working really hard and talking to my wife about it so that there's ambient awareness of what's going on it it just makes a huge difference but then i know to scale back at the appropriate time you know and that kind of riding the waves it works beautifully it really does it allows me to do what i need to do and it allows me to rest and recuperate and do all those important things
1: and i think it's really important it's very very hard to care deeply and do more than three things well at the same time.
0: Yeah, I agree. And three
1: might even, some people might argue it's
0: two. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, moving along in terms of, you you also talk about community and, and presence as two of the other big ones. And what tell us about those.
1: So presence is being completely there for what is in front of you in the moment. And upstream of the moment, it's defining what matters and then choosing those things to be present for Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now how does this actually play out it means that there are times when your phone should be off and not even in the same room as you same goes for your computer it means that when you are doing administrative work you should just be doing administrative work when you're with a patient Ideally, you shouldn't be psychologically thinking about the next patient or a case you should be with that patient. I think that surgeons actually have an easier time with this because such a big part of your job is being fully present. You have the perfect conditions for flow. Um, I've talked to surgeons that describe it as like an addiction because it's like the one area of their life where they just are, no one's bugging them. They're just in the zone and the more complex the case, the better.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think that y'all are actually very blessed to have something where you can pursue excellence in a container where it's just you and your colleagues or the team in this patient. Now, then the question becomes out of the OR, can you bring some of that discipline to other meaningful things in your life? Especially Probably when not the, when
0: the fan is blowing millions of things at you. you know? Right. So then yes. it's like how do you how do you how
1: do you figure out which of those things are worth being present for and then turn off and say no to the rest. Um, and back to being honest with yourself, is are you going to be fully present when you're on call? Of course not. There's always going to be a part of your brain that's wondering if the phone's going to ring. But when you're not on call, can you put your phone away at 7 p.m. and not look at it until the next day? Um, do you really have to go to that administrative meeting uh, at 7.30 where you're going to have some crappy lasagna dinner delivered Or do you want to go home and be with your family or go to a book club or go to another community group um these are the trade-offs that that i think it's you just have to be aware of there's no right decision but being grounded is being aware and making a decision instead of just going on autopilot
0: yeah and and on that very topic I, i i talk about having it's a default way of living that we can all easily get into you know just the the pattern of what we're doing and to, to snap out of that, you know, even just to take the phone, as you say, and turn it off for an hour when you're at dinner or whatever. I mean, you know, that takes in high levels of intentionality and, and, and courage even, you know, to, to stop it and, and to put it away uh, and, and discipline. And But you, you also talked about one time, you know, the, how, how does someone start that process when they feel so overwhelmed? You know, someone comes to you and you're coaching them, how do you start to get a grip on this when you, you feel like you're walking into the day and it's just nothing but white water all day long? Mm. So, start
1: really small and specific. Mm-hmm. So, trying to say that I'm just going to be a more present person. It's not going to work. Not going to work. No.
0: It's no a million different. years.
1: <laughs> right, no different than, um, than I'm just going to be a better runner or um, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. not if you don't train. Yeah. So how do you train to be more present is the same way you train for anything. You start really small and concrete. So for clients that struggle with this, I start with just two hours a week, two by one of intentional, undistracted time. They get to choose it in advance. It can be when they're on a run, it can be when they're at dinner and intentional and distracted time means the phone is nowhere to be seen. Cause there's some fascinating research that, um, that I talk about in the book where even the mere sight of a phone is an enormous distraction. Even if it's off, even if it's not your own phone, because our brains are so, um, environmentally stimulated that 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 phone comes to represent everything else that's happening in the world, everything that we could be falling behind on all our emails. And just the mere sight of that phone is going to take you away from what you're doing. And this has been studied really empirically where people, uh, researchers at Wisconsin have participants have a conversation and in one condition, there's nothing on the table in another condition, there's a notebook on the table. And in the third condition, there's a phone turned off on the table. And what they find is the nothing on the table and the notebook condition in the notebook, it's a clever experiment, right? They're controlling for an object mm-hmm, on the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have the same results of connection, the same recall of the conversation face down phone it goes to crap
0: yeah just the mere face down phone presence yeah doesn't know, even have excited. to belong yeah. to the
1: participants just yeah. a random phone
0: yeah yeah that's the power of these things over us but like you said and like anything else i mean if you're going to start exercising you're going to start with a new diet you know start small and keep going you know yes is, is that, that's my mantra start small and keep going and don't stop
1: and be really 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 uh intentional about your environment Mm-hmm. So when people think of like fully present people, often you think of a monk or an abbot. Well, there's a reason that monks and abbots live in monasteries. There's no distraction, right? It's nothing. It's just a big, quiet building. Yeah. You're not distracted by the other sex because you can't have sex. You're not distracted by substance because there's no substances. Um, so it's hard to be present. In this world of stimulation, a lot of the stimulation is good. Like I don't particularly want to live in a monastery, right? But there's a lot to learn from people that do starting with your environment's really important. So -hmm. you don't have to live in a monastery, but can you have a couple hours a week where you're in a monastery, whether you're writing, whether you're with your, your wife or your husband or your kids, what have you, it doesn't matter, but how do you get intentional and create those spaces?
0: What about the role of meditation in helping build that muscle of presence? And do you subscribe to that? Do you advocate it?
1: I do. I'm a, I'm a big believer in mindfulness meditation for building that muscle. I think that, um, what too often happens is that meditation is taken out of the traditions that it evolved in and sold as like a panacea cure all.
0: Yeah, for stress, and for everything. Yeah, and
1: it's not that. So, it's not at all. For people interested in meditation, I always recommend great, and pair it with one of these spiritual traditions that it evolved in. Whether it's Taoism, Buddhism, Stoicism, um, more mystic versions of Judaism or Christianity. I mean, it's there. It's in all the perennial traditions. It is. It's ubiquitous. Yeah. In what in, in in Christianity, it's called contemplation or mm-hmm. prayer, but it's the same. Mm-hmm. Same thing. But also in all of these traditions, it tends to be surrounded by ethics, by community. So to just think that if you sit and pay attention to your breath for 20 minutes a day, you're going to have some master transformation. I don't buy, Mm -hmm. but to read the Stoics or to read the Buddhist, um, and start to meditate and reflect on your core values. Yeah. That can be really powerful. I don't know if that's how you, what's your, what's been your experience?
0: Yeah, my experience. Well, I, I started out, you know, with the typical striving. I'm going to sit down 45 minutes and I'm going to pay attention to my breath. And I could never pay attention to my breath for probably longer than 15 to 20 seconds before I was off on some tangent. And so that was very discouraging. And then I found the Waking Up app by Sam Harris, and that a great app that transformed literally aspects of my life. And and it it just created this container of consciousness, you know that. I see, and it gives me the skill, as you say, the skillful navigation of of what's in front of me, of reality. And it it, it was a very, very powerful uh, app, and the teachings in that in that thing. But one of the getting back to some of the earlier conversation, and and this hits at the you know the the issue of striving and our desire to really be the best surgeon or the best marathoner or whatever else, and. And it's one, it comes from the app, and it's one of the lectures by Go, Joseph Goldstein.
1: Oh, he's a great teacher. He's probably my favorite meditation same teacher. Same
0: here, same here. And it was the one on impermanence. And this key distinction for me was so crucial. He talks about we don't want to be detached. Uh, what we want is to not cling to, as you say, the goalpost out in front of us, Like, I got to get there. I need to do this. You know, you're clinging emotionally and then onto it or resist and, you know, aversion to things that the idea is to have full engagement in whatever you're doing without all that clinging and aversion. And that is the space as I'm, I'm convinced now for real fulfillment and contentment. You know, you can do things and really flourish while avoiding a lot of the emotional turmoil associated with it.
1: And that's precisely what the research shows. Yeah. So for those listening that are like, oh, Michael and Brad, you know, Buddhism, (laughs) Sam Harris, they're too woo woo. Well, again, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's flow is very empirically documented. And you could argue that flow and Nirvana are the same thing. It's just total, Mm -hmm. the ego disappears, total connection. The ego disappears. That's right. Yeah. Surgeons that don't think of themselves spiritually. I'd ask what happens when you're in a case where you don't even know what happens. Three hours yeah. passes and the case is over. Like, to me, that's a mystical experience and you don't it have is, to believe okay. in anything, yeah. but so that's, that's flow. That's just being totally uh, engrossed in what you're doing. And more recent research out of Harvard um, by a guy named Killingsworth has shown that how people rate their happiness is less associated with what they're doing and more associated with their level of focus and presence.
0: Mm -hmm. it's such a crucial skill
1: so we think that happiness is i need to be doing things i like it's actually are you present for the thing that you're doing yeah now are there exceptions of course if you're being abused and you're present for it you're going to still be miserable those extremes aside It's a lot better to be present for something that you mildly enjoy than to be having sex or watching your favorite basketball game but thinking about your phone at the same time
0: yeah right so
1: it's it's not just these wisdom traditions but it's also all of this empirical science science and people's lived experience if you haven't felt it in in a case then perhaps you felt it while playing an instrument or in sport but it's that feeling of egolessness and if there's no ego then there's no clinging
0: yeah yeah, no, the, the clinging thing is crucial, and one of the things I love about your work also is you know the three legs upon which everything you do stands, and and why don't you just tell people that so that it's not just Brad writing about things that he thinks are cool, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, although there's some of that, but um, everything well, of that course, makes I mean, it you're you're interested
0: and passionate uh, about it. Everything but, that less, makes
1: it everything that makes it into one of my books um, has to be defensible across uh, modern empirical science, and um, not. N equals 14 studies, but meta analysis, mm-hmm. Cochrane reviews, like the real deal. Uh, the second leg is history. So are there patterns across history, all the way back to the ancient wisdom traditions, supporting what modern science says is true. And then the third is actual application. Right. So it can't just work in a lab. It can't just be in textbooks or history books. When I go out and ask people, Hey, how does this play out in your life? that's the reporting part of my job then they have to validate it and i want my things to be highly defensible meaning they have to be on all three legs and i use a stool because a stool with two or one legs is wobbly yeah. but a stool with three legs you can really sit and be confident it's going to hold cuz particularly in in the science of performance and well-being it's not nearly as hard of a science as biology like truth is all in degrees of probability Right. right. And what I'm trying to do is get to a very high probability that a principle in my book is going to be true for most people in most circumstances.
0: Right. And the key word, and it's part of the title of the book and one of the legs is practice. Yes. Right. I just want to really highlight that. This is not something that just happens. You have to do the work just like any endeavor and you got to do the practice.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's two levels. So I call it the knowing doing gap. And I actually right. first heard this from a physician when I was working at TPMG. That's the Permanente Medical Group in Northern California. And first, you've got to know something before you can do it. If you don't know it, you can't do it. But a lot of people right. mistake knowing with doing. Oh, I read Brad's book or I listen to this podcast. I don't have to read the book. I don't have to practice no, this. That's, that's a common I'm, one. Yeah. I'm transformed. No. But there's a huge gap between knowing something and doing it. Yeah. So what I try to do in all of my work is... Every single principle addresses that gap. So first there's knowing I have to convince someone and argue for the, the value of it, but then there's the, Hey, here is the super concrete stuff that in some instances is simple, but simple doesn't mean easy oh, right. and here's how to start doing it and start mm-hmm. doing it gradually and build up over time. And that, that's one of the nice
0: things, great things about your book, the practice of groundedness. I mean, you give clear. You're not left with a chapter. Oh, this is how it all works. You give clear, you know, specific advice about how to start implementing some of these practices in your life. So, and that's what
1: I get. And that's what I get out of the, the coaching work that I do. Yeah. Because, you know, full disclosure, when I'm writing, I'd much rather just live in intellectual world and land of ideas. Yes. Cause (laughs) it's more interesting and it's easier.
0: Yeah.
1: But I try to push myself to say, all right, this isn't just brain candy. Here's actually how to apply it and do it yeah. because yeah. that's the value for so many people.
0: Yeah. And I, I find coaching to do the same thing for me. It really crystallizes the reality of it and making it work. Yeah. Well, then uh, kind of getting close to the end here. One of the wonderful metaphors that you use uh, is this idea of the, of the overstory of the redwoods and, and the roots and, and and one of the incredibly ubiquitous challenges of the physician's life is a sense of isolation.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and, you know, a colleague of mine just gave a talk at the uh, AATS and it was in a leadership course and he alluded to being a human being. And And afterwards he was accosted by people just so relieved that he was talking about our humanness and, and not projecting this kind of Iron Man sort of cardiothoracic surgical uh, ambiance. And, and uh, the, the isolation that we feel is so profound often and we've, when we struggle, we feel like we can't reveal it to anybody. And this just compounds over time. And the sense of community that is needed. I mean, I formed a surgeons group here in the Twin Cities five years ago. And these are very busy, you know, in clinical practice, Uh, one has seven children, they come every two weeks on Saturdays for two hours. And we get together and we talk about all sorts of real life issues. And it's in a space of confidentiality. How many people are in that group? Five. That is such a wonderful resource. It's been one of the best things I've ever done, both for me personally, and in giving back to my colleagues. It's just been incredible. So tell us about the redwood metaphor because it's, it's so amazing and, mm-hmm. and the parallel is so strong.
1: Well, I lived in Northern California, as I, as I stated, and um, we'd often go to the Santa Cruz mountains where there's these beautiful, big redwood forests and i just became in awe of those trees their their trunks are the diameter of school buses at times mm-hmm. they're 200 mm-hmm. feet off the ground they have these big overstories. and i got a book about redwoods because i became so fascinated by them and i could not believe it but their roots only run six to 12 feet deep
0: i know this is such an astounding revelation you know you so think there's this, this like like enormous feet. tree yeah
1: that is so tall with such a big overstory. And you watch those things in a thunderstorm and they are swaying. Right. And the roots are only six to 12 feet deep. And you're thinking, how on earth does it stand? And the answer is you'll never see a redwood tree isolated because all the roots of all the trees are intertwined with each other. So it's a network yeah. of roots yeah. that holds each tree up. Right. And that's us too as human beings um yet in heroic individualism what you alluded to the problem is we prioritize efficiency and speed over community because community is inefficient my guess is after that first two-hour meeting most people maybe it was like you know insightful and immediately valuable but generally it takes time to build rapport and community and mm-hmm. even then giving up 2 hours when you've got kids and a busy practice and so on and so forth it's really it's inefficient in the short term but in the long term nothing is more meaningful than these intimate relationships we have particularly when shit hits the fan
0: yeah
1: because it's hard enough to get help when shit hits the fan and shit hits the fan for everyone no everyone. one gets out of life without a cancer diagnosis a death of a partner a death of a child the death of a parent you know this is just the human condition and when that happens, it is very hard to tolerate if you're alone, whereas if you've built a community like the Redwoods, that community can hold you while you're experiencing the rough weather.
0: And to, to live and part of the trouble with this, I mean, one of the side effects, if you will, of surgical training, and it's sort of necessary in a way, I mean, you you do need to be self-sufficient. And so it's one of those things, you know, it's good until it's not, you know, and to parlay that into a ubiquitous application of self-sufficiency is, is, uh, is not good because we are wired as human beings to be in community and need each other and be around each other and connected.
1: Right. And I think that that's, that's how I define wisdom by the way is to know about things and also know when to use them. Right. So self-reliance and self-efficiency when you're in the OR, or when someone is coding is really important. That's a great time to use those qualities. Yeah. But when you're the one that's struggling and suffering and you need help, that's the time to let go of those qualities and lean on
0: community. Right. Right. Yeah, very powerful. It's also but really hard
1: was- in in surgical training just because um there's so little time for community. As a resident, it's your community is your colleagues. So if you if you hopefully you have a good a good program, um because there's just no time. so i think also not only do you have this mindset of self-reliance but also during a formative time of a lot of physicians lives they're they're working so many hours that it's hard to build
0: that community and then it just gets propagated as we go through life
1: yes um so i think it's it's not wallowing in despair it's accepting that hey this is it and that then empowers you to to start working on building community because it's never too late i mean if you're listening to the show then in a way you're already a part of a community because you're taking time to, to, to go on this journey with you, Michael, and your guests. And that's as easy as sharing it with your colleagues and then, Hey, maybe we should discuss this, or maybe we should all read this book together. Um, and then the hard part is the first or second meeting, those are easy, but it's meetings like two through 10 when people have conflicts or when something comes up and really sticking to it and getting through that bump on the other side, then what you get is like a support group for
0: life, which is so important, so important, so important, so important. Well, the last, the last piece is the movement piece. And can you talk a little bit about movement and you're, if I understand you correctly, you're not talking about like running marathons or doing things like that. So what do you mean by movement as one of the core foundations?
1: So movement is really simple and it just basically means to, to move your body. Um, I define that as anything that gets your heart rate up a little bit and that puts some stress on your musculoskeletal system. That could be gardening. That can be a 30 minute brisk walk. It can be dancing. It can be yoga. It certainly can be doing CrossFit or running marathon. Sure, it doesn't have sure. to be. Yeah. Um, and you know, Descartes got it wrong, right? He said that where I think therefore I am mind and body are separate, but, um, that's just not true. We now know how connected mind and body are, or brain and body. And you could even argue. I I I think that the mind, what we call, and this is getting now in the weeds, but I think the mind is the connection between the brain and body. So you can talk about the brain as an organ. You can talk about the body as organs. I think the mind, or the nervous that. system, that's that. the connection that's between brain yeah. and body. It really is, yeah. And if we want to have a healthy mind, then we have to take care of both. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a regular movement practice. Again, doesn't need to be heroic. Just Thirty minutes a day, brisk walk is plenty. Is so so good for mental health, for resilience, for performance, for all the things that we care about.
0: Yeah, I'm taking the time to actually do that. Now I have a German Shepherd like you. Yours is Asana, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Ananda. Oh, I didn't know. of course you have Ananda, a German Shepherd. I'm sorry. We're, we're kindred Ananda, spirits. Yeah, yeah, How old yeah. is your German Shepherd?
0: Uh, he's he's uh, five right now. We've had German Shepherds for twenty years. And what's his name? Uh, Ash, Ash. He's a long-haired shepherd from from Germany. In fact, yeah. I love
1: German shepherds. You know, oh, if this podcast different. fails and my work as a writer fails, just call me. I've wanted to start a podcast on German shepherds.
0: <laughs> is that right? Oh my god! Yeah, because so... I'm sure
1: there's like a niche community of people like us that just could talk about German shepherds forever. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. And we we actually get ours from Germany, and they're just spectacular dogs. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I say to other dog owners and I love all dogs, but a German, it's not even, it's like a different, and I've owned other dogs. It's just a different
0: species almost. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. But for me, the, the, you know, being out in nature has been another thing shown to be so beneficial to our Correct. mental health. And for me, the walks with the dog and, and especially ironically in the winter, cause I'm not a big fan of winter, but the, the the cold and the isolation and the silence and my dog and me it's that is like a very spiritual time for me and people i think if they can find those moments out in nature at all like this it's even small bits it's very powerful stuff
1: yeah getting a dog is one of the best things you can do for your mental yeah. health yeah for that reason just forces you to walk
0: right well, this is this has been fabulous, uh, Brad. I, I I can't thank you enough. And you know, in in kind of closing, we've heard all these things. It's a lot. You know, what what would you recommend to people that want to really start working on some of these things? The practice of groundedness. What would you? How would you advise them?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say, and, and my publisher would kill me if I didn't, is um, to check reading out the hope. book <laughs> yes. because I I, I I agree. Yeah. And I think reading the book actually. Forces you to practice patience and presence Mm -hmm. and maybe vulnerability, because if you haven't read a book in a year because you're so busy and you don't have time to slow down, it's kind of a great forcing mechanism to like see what that's like. Yeah. Um, So that would be step one. And then step number two would be to, out of all the practices in the book and all the principles, start with the one that you're most curious about and that you think you'll have the easiest time with. Mm -hmm. And then go from there. Go from there. Little victories, little um, victories. and yeah. in, in much like heroic individualism and distraction and speed and the cult of optimization and um, self-doubt, these are vicious cycles. Groundedness is a virtuous cycle, yeah. so once you have one of these habits, then the next one becomes easier, and once you have three, then number four becomes easier, and pretty soon it becomes a lifestyle, and it's not to say that you're going to walk around like the Buddha. I certainly don't. I still no. sometimes snap on my wife. I'm still impatient with my kids sometimes. I still look at how many copies my book sold probably Mm -hmm, too many times, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I'm aware of it and I can laugh at myself when I do it. And then I get back on the path more swiftly. And that's really what this is all about. If you can shoot 60, if you can shoot
0: 60%, that's great. That's great. Yeah, no, that's great. So, well, I, I, I concur totally with what you just said. So excellent advice.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure um, getting to have this conversation with you. And,
0: and where, where can our, uh, listeners find you if they want to do more, more digging and you've got this incredible podcast, uh, Mention that if you would.
1: Yeah. So I, I have a podcast called the growth equation that I co-host with my, um, my collaborative partner, Steve Magnus. And then the only social media that I'm on is Twitter where I'm at B stallberg just like my name. And then my website is also just like my name, www.bradstahlberg.com.
0: And on Twitter, he he puts out a fair amount and it's really great stuff. So kind of keeping up with uh, his thinking and and his world is great on Twitter. Thank you. Well, thank you so much again. It was a real honor. And and again, your time here is uh, very precious to us. So thanks so much, Brad.
1: Thank you thanks for having me and for providing this um this really important service to a a bunch of driven people that we need to to sustain their excellence in the world because one day i might be on the table so i'm rooting for all
0: you this has been the resilient surgeon a podcast brought to you by the society of thoracic surgeons thank you so much for listening if you like this podcast please rate it five stars and let your friends trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.